Hello and welcome to this special episode of The World in Perspective. <laughs> Only two days after we planned to release our last one. I am Cameron Vasquez, Editor-in-Chief and Founder of The International Scholar. I am in Cincinnati, Ohio, and joining me uh, from somewhere in central Massachusetts, once again, is Diana Roy um, from Gibraltar, Scott Cipollina. And new on this podcast is uh, Daniel Odin Shaw, and he is set up in Scotland. So hello, everybody. How are you guys doing? Hello. Hi. <laughs> All right. Well, good. A little shell-shocked still, probably. I mean, I know I am. Um, we're recording this podcast on Friday, January the 8th, after recording our last podcast on Tuesday, January the 5th, um, only a day and some hours um, before the capital was stormed by a mob of Trump supporters um, that have since, in my personal opinion, rightly been categorized as domestic terrorists. Um, guys, what were you doing at the time when you learned about the uh, the capital riots? I know that I heard of it from Diana because she just texted me in all caps. Have you seen what's happening at the Capitol? And I assumed it was going to be some sort of dramatic political showdown over the election, but <laughs> not quite. <laughs> I was unable to pry my eyes off of it for another five hours after that. Um, I was I was trying to help my girlfriend complete the classic nineties children's game Banjo Kazooie. <laughs> if any of you remember that, it's an incredibly frustrating platform game. So I was like sitting there furious already, and then that started happening. <laughs> but <laughs> mostly, I was like I was trying to read up on the Georgia results because I knew they were coming in, and I thought that was going to be the biggest bit of political news from America for that day. It and was for about five just... minutes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, well and truly overshadowed. No, I was at work and just kind of scro <laughs> scrolling Twitter, trying to keep up with just what's going on. Um, and, you know, just get, you know, refreshing the page and she's getting this like abundance of tweets in all caps of like, hey, this is going on. Pictures, like short video clips. I have my friends texting me who live in Washington, D.C. And so I was immediately like, what the heck is going on? So I texted Cameron to make sure he's keeping up to date on what's going on as well. Um, but, you know, truly kind of shocking in the moment i did not expect to wake up on wednesday and you know i did not predict that that would be happening later on especially with the georgia elections i was really looking forward to kind of seeing those results come out and as daniel mentioned definitely overshadowed um you know that day and you know are still so you know yeah, of well, course i was actually preparing our podcast from tuesday for publication at the time and you know sort of threw my hands up and equal parts, just surprise, frustration, and angst, um, and then increasingly um, suspenseful fear uh, for our democracy as I watched live, um, you know, the report on uh, C-SPAN, you know, as they were like, oh, well, now the protesters are in the building, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, surely security will force them out now. Um, <laughs> pulled and then, you know, oh, guns have been pulled in the building. And then, oh my gosh, the senators are being rushed out of the chambers. I'm like, is this going to be, you know, the next 9-11 event or something like that? Like, what's going to happen today? Um, I think most Americans, um, you know, tuning in at the time must have been in some equal period of suspenseful fear. Um, most people kind of forget because there's so much focus on the president, but Congress is sovereign. The Capitol is the, the, the building of the United States government. Um, 
and to have it breached in a two hour period by an angry mob of, uh, you know, gun toting Americans at the time. I mean, that's frightening. Uh, it's not like we hadn't seen this coming as uh, many have said, you know, wryly or, uh, seriously, you know, for the last four years, um, something like this, um, so, Diana, why don't you just take us briefly through a couple of the major developments? Yeah. Um, so his his speech at the White House, like that rally, um, there's a lot of kind of key quotes that really jumped out that were echoed in different articles that were posted and just things like that. And a few, well, one of the main ones that stuck out to me was him saying that this election was stolen from you, from me, from the country, and that he quote unquote won in a landslide. And then following that, he said this quote-unquote is not the end, it's just the beginning, and that he, we will never give up, we will never concede. And, you know, having had these, having had the election votes kind of been affirmed multiple times at that point, just like hearing that from, you know, the highest governing authority in this quote-unquote free country, that was just really shocking to kind of just hear him still spewing this false rhetoric and, you know, speaking to hundreds you know, not hundreds, but thousands of people who are there supporting him and, you know, actually believe what he's saying. And so hearing him say that was just like, oh my God, like kind of, I was personally thinking like, what, you know, how are people believing this? Like you have, it's been, you know, disputed multiple, multiple times. Like how is, you know, he's still on, kind of on this train. Um, and that was personally just very frustrating to hear as well, that like we're still kind of on this, uh, this piece of discourse that we just simply cannot move past or he cannot move past and and that was just really frustrating overall um but he also another thing that he did during that speech that also struck me was that he called on pence um and multiple other republicans he called them quote unquote weak and pathetic so attacking you know members of his own party and then you know rallying supporters and calling on them to march to the u.s capitol so really being the instigator of the violence that then occurred only, you know, not even an hour later, that was also just like, I could not believe what I was watching and was equal parts frustrating as it was just like complete, I was just in complete disbelief. Like this is, you know, the president of the United States basically giving them permission to go do this. And then you see the events that unfolded and the, you know, the hours following and I was, you know, it just, I had no, I was at a loss of words. I couldn't even, you know, comprehend at the time. So looking back at everything that did happen after that, I'm still just in a state of disbelief that that actually happened. So, yeah. I mean, and of course you had, you know, Rudy Giuliani up there also saying, and this really stuck out to me. I mean, it was shared many times afterwards, of course. And so I'm sure many of our listeners have already heard it. But at some point he said, let's have trial by combat. Uh, right around the time as well that Trump had just suggested that everybody head over to protest at the Capitol. And then, you know, following that statement, Trump said, you know, you'll, you, we're never going to win by weakness. Right now, as I understand it, that, that those who are trying to push sort of legal charges are saying, you know, did they or did they necessarily know, did they incite the violence? And then, you know, can we prove that, you know, they knew that they would have that effect? And I mean, but, you know, here we have someone saying, hey, let's, you know, multiple speakers saying, you know, we need to take to the streets, let's go march on the Capitol, let's have trial by combat, them actually storm the building and, you know, with weapons, you know, looking, seeking out the senators, and then actually breaking into the chambers, right, you know, looting and sacking the offices and things like that you've seen the pictures of. 
them on the dais and then also, you know, in Speaker Pelosi's office. Well, I mean, it's, it's fascinating when you bring up this sort of idea of how directly they incited to violence because, I mean, politicians in America have always used dog whistles. I mean, go back to Nixon, there's been kind of racist, even violent dog whistles in politics. And the amazing thing about Trump is he stripped a lot of that away and said the quiet part loud. And then you see some of his fans. I mean, again, you have different layers there. I mean, you have, after the Charlottesville thing, he was kind of supportive, kind of not. At times he's been quite clear, but then other times he's disguised it quite well. You have, like, the QAnon phenomenon, which was a big part of this, I think, where they really, really look in-depth and try and divine clues. And to them, I mean, a lot of the time, they're, they're kind of finding code words and stuff that's not really there. They're having to look really, really deep to find the justification for what they're doing. And this one's pretty amazing because he actually did say, right, let's go to the Capitol right now. <laughs> he didn't say to break in, necessarily. I suppose that's probably going to be the defence there. He wasn't that specific. But he was pretty specific about where to go and why to go and when to go. So, I mean, it's quite an amazing thing to see it just be that simple. But then, as you say, the question, a little bit for me, and I guess we might get into this, is it a coup? Is it terrorism? Is it an insurrection? You don't want to get into semantics, but when you talk about what they'd done when they were in there, they were on the dais, they were in people's offices. I mean, people managed to get into Speaker Pelosi's office and they did what? You know, took some selfies, did some live streaming. The thing that I'm really interested to find out, and this might come out once they've actually arrested and interviewed some of these people, is um, what was the plan? And, like, what plan did they think Trump was giving them? You know, you go to the Capitol and then what? You break into the building and then what? You know, and this is the thing that I wonder about this term coup. It's uh, how do you get from A to B? How do you get from... Right. going to the capital to installing Trump as president, right? I'm not clear, I mean, do you kidnap Mike Pence and make him go on TV and say we're recertifying the votes, or do you kill all of Congress? Or like, what, what's your game plan here once you're in, you know? And that's where it, it sort of breaks down for me, is Trump gave them enough information to push them to the capital. He didn't really tell them what to do. Right, and that's why, I mean, there's been, as, as, as political science Twitter always is, um, you know, discussion as the event is actually occurring <laughs> over what the event really is. Um, and while I, I personally wouldn't say it necessarily was a coup in the proper political science definition of an organized, orchestrated event to try to overthrow and, you know, overthrow the government and install a different regime. Um, you know, it's been suggested that perhaps it was more of a, you know, using the German term putsch, it was a dirty grab for power. Was it well planned? No. But just because, you know, I came after you without a weapon and I tried to force you to sign papers giving me all of your savings doesn't mean that I didn't try to do that. Just means I didn't really have a good plan for it. Um, you know, and so you could still be tried. You know, what was the intent is my question more so. Um, and it seemed pretty clear that what a number of those, those, um, uh, more violent elements of the mob really were after was not just sort of making a statement, but um, they were very directly searching for the Senate um, and trying to stop the election ratification proceedings that install, that formally recognize the election results and therefore certify that Biden won the presidency. So there is definitely an effort to stall that process with the end of which being slightly less than clear, but you know, my inclination is to say it was probably to to force through either use of force or direct threat on the lives of individuals to um, imagine if the Senate had remained, for example, 
and they'd been caught by the mob. Um, to have them do what at that point, right? You know, what would if this scenario? And we can only draw speculation at that point because it didn't happen and we don't necessarily know. This wasn't an organized group of people. They didn't have a manifesto. They didn't say, here's what we plan to do and we're going to do it here and at this time with this purpose. But Well, in a sense, that's like that's a microcosm of Trumpism even as an electoral phenomenon when you see people trying to analyze it as if it's a coherent ideology. And obviously every social movement is diverse, but the amazing thing is even within that group that made it to the capital, there were some like well-armed hardcore white yeah. supremacists who were trying to enact some sort of Turner Diaries Day of the Rope thing where you kill Congress and take power. Sure. And there also looked like there were a lot of, like, you know, dudes having fun, yeah. right? People taking pictures because they're trying to get clout on, on the internet, right? Which is, like, those are two very, very different things. And, of course, that's the thing. Like, a group like that can contain multitudes. And I think it's interesting because, you know, you'd see even just after the election, people... You know, New York journalists getting on a bus to West Virginia to do a sort of like, oh, working class Trumpism, what does it mean? There was always this attempt to boil it down to one thing. And even in that small, hardcore group, there was just so much going on, you know, like the QAnon conspiracy theorists, old school neo-Nazis, you know. like It, it um, is a diverse constituency, it's, it's interesting but, but they all share some sort of, as we were saying on the last episode, and, and Scott and Diana, you'll remember this, you know, we were talking about, you know, whatever gets fed into this particular mindset, it gets filtered through this sort of belief system that, you know, this this ultimate, um, you know, aim or goal or group is always right. Um, and we were talking about this on the last episode, Scott, you know, when we were talking about the misinformation, and I know you've been tracking this, you know, ad nauseum, and that you've been on, um, you know, all the uh, sort of alternative social media networks and things like that, kind of trying to cover what's happening. How, I mean, how can we still have two different narratives like this? Well, I mean, from, from my view, what I've, what I've seen, and this is, a lot of this is stuff that's already, like, well circulated now on mainstream social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., um, is that we actually had a fairly clear indication of what the group motivation was. Um, of course, there, there has to be wiggle room here for any particular individual and their interpretation of their own their own role. But I'm just going to read out some comments that were listed on online websites like Parler. Um, there's a website called thedonald.win. Um, a lot of People that supported these protests or attended these protests were, were, were talking very clean, very in, well, in plain English, really. Um, for days leading up to January the 6th, I'm just going to read out some things that, that they said. Um, bring handcuffs and zip ties to DC. No more tolerating elected officials who hate us and hate our country. January 6th is the chance to restore this country. Barging into the capital through multiple entryways is the surest way to have our bases covered and be sure we can apprehend traitors. If we occupy the Capitol building, there will be no vote. So that's just a few examples, but there are many more than that, I can assure you. And to me, that just puts everything in plain sight, that the very clear motivation of this group was to upend democracy and to halt its process and ensure that Congress didn't formally recognize Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. Um, we can have a discussion about why this is occurred i think one of the things that we haven't discussed enough not just on this podcast which we've really just begun but i mean more generally we haven't discussed the national security and intelligence implications of of what happened on the 6th um both before and after the fact i think we can get to after the fact a little bit later but beforehand um one of the things that i saw uh i believe this was yesterday 
um, the chief of the DC police actually went on record and said that there was no evidence a breach would occur in the Capitol building. We have to be careful. I actually tweeted about this, um, but we, I think we have to be quite like careful with semantics here because what he said as a matter of sheer fact was that there was no evidence a breach would occur. That might actually be true. There might have been no doubt in the relevant authorities' minds that a breach would be successful. But to claim, which is at least the implication, that no breach was going to be attempted, I think is is false. There, there was significant evidence that there was going to be an attempt of some sort. Um, and I think that there's going to have to be a really hard discussion to be had here about where intelligence and where law enforcement sits in taking open source intelligence seriously. Um, and it actually, for me, is a little bit reminiscent to what happened to go back couple decades to 9-11, um, the president gets yeah. a presidential daily brief every day from his intelligence agencies. Um, and on August the 6th, uh, 2001, President Bush received a presidential daily brief that was titled, Bin Laden is determined to attack the United States. And um, he is reported as responding more or less by saying, tell me something I don't know. Um, then about five weeks later, we have the tragic events of 9-11. And obviously that's a very different situation to what we saw on the 6th of January. I'm not trying to say that these two things are equivalent in, in any sort of way, but it is interesting to draw parallels between... In terms of information, what you knew, warnings when you knew that, and how seriously you took it. Yeah, no. exactly. Warnings that warnings that we receive and the weight at which we actually hold intention and very well-documented, transparent intention. It's very easy for someone to put something online and say... Hey, I want to fuck up the Capitol building. Yeah, that can happen. But there's a question to be had here, and it looks as though in the last two years, last two decades rather, we haven't really learned very much. And if if I could, yeah, just back that up by a point that I think has been made already. It's not original. It's almost a hang point to make, but I think it's worth making because it's the sort of thing that needs to be talked about. Is you know, if this was a different type of protest, mm-hmm. if this was a different type of insurrection would the security have been more serious, right? The obvious example to make is if they had been black, would they have been treated as nicely? No, I'm pretty sure there would be blood all over the Capitol Evidence today. would suggest not. Yeah, yeah. And even putting the even putting the racial aspect aside, I mean, not that you would need to, but I mean, even if they were leftist or if they were... You know, like, you've seen the FBI take more aggressive tactics with animal rights activists or Greenpeace, you know? And, and it's interesting to see that... You know, the, the, I've seen different videos and they, sometimes it looks like it got pretty tasty. There was a lot of people there. The police were outnumbered. The question is, why weren't there more police there? And also, why were the protesters in many cases able to more or less right. walk in, at least until they got quite far into the building? So there's the question of, yeah, when would we take open source intelligence seriously? And also, if this was open source intelligence about Muslims, about black nationalists, about communists, about anarchists, would it have been a different approach? Maybe. Now, the question there is, is that prejudice on the part of the police or is it because the Trump administration deliberately tried to pack the DOD with loyalists well, who here's, would deploy the National Guard until they absolutely had to? Be, to be fair, no, that's, that's, that's a great question to be asking. I think, to a certain extent, everyone, without knowing all the inner details of of the, the decision-making apparatus at the time, um, is a little, and just in terms of the individual people making the decision, it, we're all a little out of our depth there. I mean, my understanding for why DOD turned down the request initially was that the National Guard that would be deployed would be the DC National Guard. In other words, they're federally controlled and therefore would fall under the 
control of the president, who, of course, at the time would have been a dangerous person mm -hmm. in anybody's mind to hand over control to a large contingent of law enforcement officers storming the Capitol after a bunch of mobs that also support the president storm the Capitol, right? What happens then? That, mm -hmm. That's a very volatile situation. Um, especially as the senators are active and senators and house members, you know, and all of their aides are actively being, you know, spirited away to undisclosed locations. I understand as well. And this is a different question to kind of get into. I mean, you, you mentioned DOJ. DOJ apparently offered the D.C. police twice to deploy the FBI and the police turned them down both times um, until eventually, you know, there were FBI and SWAT deployed once it became clear that the capital was completely under the control of the mob. So that, that more raises the question in my mind of, you know, what were the police thinking <laughs> as opposed to what was DOJ thinking? DOJ was like, the capital is being taken. We need to deploy someone to resecure the building. That to me raises just a lot of questions to be asked about, you know, who's making those decisions for the DC police? Why did they think that there was just going to be a standard protest? Where was the information flow? Did the police know all of this beforehand? Did they not know all of this? Why didn't they know? And then why didn't DOJ insist or, you know, why didn't some relevant agency insist on, the, you know, providing more security? Raises questions, as many have been, you know, raising throughout the media about the security of the inauguration. There's just so many different questions that we don't have answers to. Um, but at the same time, the points you raise are valid. I mean, if it had been Black Lives Matter, I think we would have seen perhaps double what we saw for the Black Lives Matter. I mean, Lafayette Park in D.C. had better security than the Capitol did that day over the course of weeks. Yeah, the American government is quite capable of putting a ring of steel around any building in the country that it wants. The question is, I guess, why didn't that happen? And I mean, there's an interesting thing. I'll, the, the name escapes me right now, but there's been quite a lot written about this fragmentation of security provision in the US, which I guess the Department of Homeland Security was supposed to kind of be a partial fix to, although it's not really been. But there is this lack of clarity, or, well, not the lack of clarity, but there's an overlap in terms of chain of command and who's in control of what. You know, you've got local police, state police, federal police, National Guard, ICE. I'd be, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but I mean, it seems to me like this fragmentation of security provision within the US, it, it seems like this is part and parcel of this idea of checks and balances between the executive and other branches of government, but also between different levels of government, right, between local, state, federal forces. But at a certain point, that checks and balances goes into this kind of extreme fragmentation, where it actually seems mm. to make it more likely that different parts of that could come into conflict with each other. Not that I think there's going to be a civil war or a major civil conflict in the US, I don't, but in a lot of countries, it's quite difficult to have really the government split apart in some armed manner because there's kind of a unity of command. Whereas in the US, it's interesting that there are parts of the security apparatus which are not only under the control of different bits of the government, but which seem to have kind of quite different political cultures. Now you can imagine a situation in which ICE are on a different side from the FBI and things like this, right? You can imagine how um, a force that's under the control of the DOJ differs from a force that's under the control of one of the states. So I don't know how this kind of plays into the potential for more conflict here. Here it didn't result in any direct conflict between different groups within the state security apparatus, but it did seem to potentially lead to the kind of dereliction of duty by part of it, or at least a failure to adequately prepare. I wanted to pivot to something that we had been talking about before this uh, podcast, Diana, and that's the comparisons that um, 
and sort of the reactions uh, to situations in Latin America, uh, you know, and by Latin American leaders and, and, and pundits who cover Latin America to, you know, the concept of, for example, an autogolpe de Estado. So, you know, golpe de Estado being a, a coup of state, you know, state coup, autogolpe being an, a self-coup um, sort of imposed by the leader. So, I mean, what was the kind of reaction throughout Latin America to this event and and uh, <laughs> lots of nervous uh, smirks across the webcam today. <laughs> well, my Twitter feed is, you know, I there's so many Latin American scholars that are, you know, that I personally follow and I keep up with. And I think my Twitter feed and just like my news feed that day on Wednesday and, you know, since Wednesday have since been kind of two parts. So one is very much scholars who are like, you know, this is so ironic that the United States, who is so, you know, has a history of engagement and, you know, whether they want it or not in Latin America and, in, you know, in countries like Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador, like doing these types of things there, it's so normal for them because they're restoring democracy in these countries. But when it, when, when it happens on their own soil, oh, like it is, you know, it's not equivalent, it's not, you know, comparable. And there is so much talk of it just being so ironic that, you know, it is now happening in their in their own country, which I was like, you know, this is a very interesting discourse, like trying to keep up with that. Um, and the other side was very much like there were a lot of heads of state who obviously said this was, you know, very concerning. This is an attack on American democracy, like Colombia and Chile specifically, you know, we're confident they're saying they were saying that they were confident that American democracy and, you know, the rule of law will prevail. And, you know, Venezuela, who it, the Venezuelan government issued a statement similarly the same day on Wednesday, you know, condemning this political polarization, you know, hoping that stability will return. And that's that's one side of it. And then you see another, um, you know, specifically looking at Latin American countries that are, you know, not pro-Trump, but are more favorable and friendly with him. And I look to Mexico specifically. And, you know, as soon as Trump put out that video um, on Twitter in response to the situation and, you know, calling for his supporters, you know, I, we love you, you're very special, but like, you have to go home, we have to have peace. And as soon as he posted that, social media um, platforms later on were like, you know, we got to censor this, we'll take down his accounts and whatnot. And I look to Mexico specifically, who's very friendly, um, and whose president actually put out a statement in response to Trump's video. And, you know, he was like, I don't agree with that. I don't accept that in terms of the censorship of Trump's accounts and of his social media, um, just the information he's putting out in terms of video and tweets. And that was interesting because that's the other side of the argument in that, you know, you have a lot of countries whose leaders are like-minded to Trump. And I look to Mexico and Brazil, specifically in Latin America. Um, and, you know, they're not necessarily condemning it as much of other countries have, but they're also looking more towards the attack on speech and, you know, freedom of expression more so than they are on the actual violence that took place. And, you know, those two narratives that are being, I guess, connected to Latin American history and the history of U.S. engagement in the region is just interesting to see unfold because you have scholars who have, you know, done this for quite a while and, you know, having these things unfold and more information come out. It's just so interesting in a tragic way to see how different governments are reacting for those who have had U.S. engagement in a way that, you know, was definitely not welcome and has been very harmful since. Um, and then others who have like-minded leaders 
like Bolsonaro, like AMLO, who are like, hey, like, I'm focusing on the freedom of expression, freedom of speech aspect of this siege than I am, you know, the actual violence and, you know, attacks that took place. And that is just a very interesting disparity between, you know, how Latin American countries are approaching responding to this incident on like a global scale. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's yeah. amazing to me how, and you see this a lot in politics all over the world and Scott, I mean, you probably see this in UK politics and on, but there's almost like a retreat to the free speech argument when politicians don't feel comfortable yes. discussing the merits, <laughs> right? So. Like, I don't want to talk about the violence. I don't want to talk about the, the actual political implications. So what I'm going to do is press that big free speech button and go, oh, I don't like censorship. You know, it's a quite, it's a low-hanging fruit of someone who's kind of been backed into a corner by their previous um, decisions. But also... Yeah, like they don't want to step on toes too much and they're going to go for like one part of it without actually addressing like the bigger issue of like, hey, this violence occurred, but like, let me focus on this niche, like freedom of speech expression aspect because I don't want to like overstep my boundaries or assert something before yeah. I know the whole like story. Like we can turn Zuckerberg into a kind of whipping boy, right? Because everyone hates Facebook. So it's a good way of distracting. But I also thought it was very interesting you bringing up this idea of, you know, again, it's almost a glub point people will make on like leftist Twitter, right? Like, oh, America loves coups abroad and it doesn't kind of like it when it comes back home, which is funny and true um, and, and very valid. But it's also, I noticed this in, some of the some of the writings in the UK and especially a lot of the stuff in the in the US, even with CNN and even with some serious news networks that should know better, and some serious senators that should know better, saying this is stuff we do in the third world, or or even worse, this is stuff that happens in banana republics. I'm like, do you know what a banana republic is? Do you know where banana republics came from? Do you know what country created the banana mm-hmm. republics? Right, and um, so it was interesting to see that, not to put the like Edward side hat on, but you know, even in this moment where things in America are as bad as they've been for a while, there's this automatic thing in the kind of commentary class, even among the political class, to lash out at the third world, the other, the people that are too savage to really understand what democracy is all about. And it's almost like their goal is to avoid the, the negative comparison with the backwards outsiders. And it's like, come on, you know, there's one one time when maybe it's, it's time to realise you need to get your own house in order. But yeah, there's still that desire to really like um, use someone else as the kind of uh, the, the negative comparison. You know, and there's not a time for negative comparisons to the international. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there's not true truth and some truth in what you're saying, Daniel. But I would also add a caveat that I think the purpose of what they're saying, a lot of them, and I can't speak for all commentators. I would never dare to. Uh, however. <laughs> You know, you do have to say the point of a lot of the statements, especially when you're talking about elected officials and stuff like that, right? Their, their rhetoric may be out of color, you know, not not um, not the right time to use the term banana republic, for example. Um, 100% agree. But that the sentiment is we are supposed to be better than this. And there's this this enduring for for all that it does that's good and for all that it does that's bad there's this concept of american exceptionalism that we have not only the responsive not only the should we be better but we have a responsibility to do and be better that this is not what we should be it and and that comes to a conversation that that diane and i had been having just earlier today and that you know there's this whole conversation over whether you know this you know people saying this is not america this is not where we are versus people saying no this is america this just happened um i think it would be more appropriate to say this is also 
America. And so that's a, a very poor way to come out and say that at the time, right? But I also recognize that the desensitized nature of American politics sometimes leads you to say really stupid things. I'm not excusing that behavior, but I'm trying to offer an explanation and a reasoning for that that thinking and, and the, the, the sentiment in the moment, what that's supposed to sound like and what it actually sounds like is you are completely ignorant of your history. And that America definitely needs to hear that. But the way that the conversation is devolving, especially on, on Twitter and, and other places online right now, is just sort of a, a, a whiplash um, in both directions that's not productive at all. But at the same time, I, I'm 100% I'm behind you when you say, look, this is not a way to talk about, um, you know, this is not us, this is you, some other, right? That's not correct at all, mm -hmm. right? The statement should simply be, this should not define us. We are better than this, period, right? There's, there's, a, there's a question to be asked, I think, here, that the most important question to be asked going forward um, is actually whether or not this actually will define America. I don't think it's a given that it will or that it won't. Um, I think if we if we look back uh, to the beginnings of Trump's campaign, um, there will have been people that said, this will not define America in five years' time. Um, and we can make our own assumptions as to whether or not those estimations were accurate. And today, there is no guarantee whether or not this will define America in the next decade. One of the most damaging things to have come out of January the 6th will have been to America's legitimacy on the on the world yeah. stage, which we've all discussed in one way or another here already. Um, and that's not news. It, everybody's aware of this already. But um, the next time America tries to advance any ethical narrative on foreign policy of any kind, it will be vulnerable to a charge of hypocrisy. And whether that is accurate or not, I'm, I'm not here to make my, my personal judgments on that are irrelevant, I would say, but it's certainly something that will happen. It's going to be a relevant detail to policymaking for the foreseeable future. So the jury, I would say, is out as to whether or not this will define America or at least define the world that America has to live in for the next few years. Um, so when we hear people say this will not define America or this will define America, I think it's too soon to call that either side of the fence. What I would ask, though, I wanted to explore what you just said there, you know, when it comes to the impact of U.S. foreign policy. And I wanted to kind of direct this question a little bit more towards Diana as well. Um, you know, when we talk about, you know, moral high ground of the United States, it's always been somewhat hypocritical, right? And that it, it, we didn't come to a, a well-functioning democracy when it was well-functioning from nothing, right? We had a very compromised system of representation that included only white landowning males, um, for a large portion of our early history. And over time, it's evolved, right? But that should always be, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of posing this, this as a rhetorical slash open question, if you will. Shouldn't that always be how you approach the promotion of democracy abroad, though? Like, look, we've overcome struggles, we're still overcoming struggles, we want to help you also overcome your struggles and pursue this ideal that we both share. Like, shouldn't that be the message that you send? Or is that too idealistic for even this podcast? <laughs> I mean, that's a good question. I think of the fact that, you know, there's that narrative and, you know, you, you learn it in history classes growing up that like America is, you know, 
the sole definer of like the free world and we are, you know, the most democratic country and, you know, we have this reputation to uphold whenever we engage with other countries that are maybe seen as less democratic. But at the same time, it's like you also have to take that with a grain of salt and acknowledge and address and understand the fact that like our history and just who we are is, as you mentioned, like there's multiple kind of sides of that coin and in praising ourselves as being the leader on this type of topic or in this type of political aspect is not necessarily something that you can constantly preach like i it does seem vain yes well that and it's also the fact that personally to me like if you have this maybe it's come up more so in the last like seven or eight years but if you have this type of uh divide internally this type of sectionalism within the country and you're trying to kind of preach this abroad but you haven't yet fixed it yourself at home or are really trying to work on it at home like how can you kind of how can you have both of those narratives at the same time and that is you know i don't know the answer to that i don't know how to fix that personally or you know how that will be addressed going forward i think biden definitely has to keep that in mind whenever he kind of strategizes his foreign policy objectives with other countries but um like it's 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 something to keep in mind that you know you can be idealistic and want the best for your country but you can also acknowledge its flaws and say hey we can't be always preaching you know that we're the best when we all have we have these issues unaddressed at home and you know they've only worsened in the past few years and that is not the sole definition of this country but that is a definition that has festered and you know has gained a lot of reputation over time that we have to really look at and analyze how do we get here and how do we take that into account when kind of strategically engaging with other countries that are maybe have similar issues that is just kind of something i've been thinking about wonderful well thank you everyone to all of our listeners around the world for tuning in if you enjoyed this podcast please do give us a rating and review on apple music or spotify or google play or wherever you're listening to us you can follow us on social media on twitter instagram facebook and linkedin but for now from myself in cincinnati and from scott in gibraltar diana in central massachusetts and daniel in scotland it's goodbye